The following is a sermon that was preached at Faith Lutheran Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. For more information about our church or to hear past sermons from Faith Lutheran, visit georgiafaith.com. Thank you for listening. Elizabeth Holmes. She was the first female self-made billionaire. But, yeah, her company Theranos was a sham and she's on trial for fraud. Pete Rose was one of the greatest players in baseball history, but he gambled on the game, probably never get in the Hall of Fame. You know, when you describe someone and have to put the word but in there, what's going to follow is not going to be good, and it probably is going to be the thing that you remember about the person rather than what made them famous in the first place. Like uh, the actress Felicity Huffman, she was a beloved actress, but... You know, she went to prison for paying bribes to get her kid into college. If you have to say the word but, what follows is never good and will probably be what you're remembered for. So there was this man named Naaman who lived in the country called Aram, which today in the Middle East, it's the part of the world called Syria. But Naaman in the Bible, he's got kind of an amazing description. Right? So he's described in the Bible as the commander of the army for the whole kingdom of Aram, but, but more than that, um, he was considered to be a great man, not just by the people, but by the king too. Because you see, he was a war hero, a national hero. He had led the army to victory over one of Aram's perennial enemies. And so he had a reputation that was amazing. So this would have been like uh, General Eisenhower coming back in World War II, right? A national hero. He was powerful. He was wealthy. He was respected. He had everything in the world going for him. But, but he had this, this spot. But he had leprosy. You know, when you read the Bible's description of him, it reads like this. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. And here's the thing. For all of his accomplishments, all of his fame, when this leprosy thing carried itself to its conclusion, all anyone was going to see about him was, but he had leprosy. And instead of being a national hero he would be an object of pity because leprosy was a devastating disease. I mean, it was a skin disease. It it disfigured you, but more than that, it was considered horribly contagious. And so if you had leprosy, you were condemned to a life of self-isolation. They would take people with leprosy and they would have to live by themselves away from everyone in leper colonies. If anyone came near them, they were required by law in Israel at least to cover their face and yell out, unclean, unclean. Getting a diagnosis of leprosy was definitely being condemned to a life of isolation, loneliness, and pain. There was no known cure. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, in Naaman's household, there was another person whose life was a bit of a walking tragedy. 
a young girl. This young girl had been captured in a war raid, and if you know anything about history, you know how these things work. Her parents were probably butchered. She was dragged off to a foreign country to be treated as property and then sold into slavery. Her life was a walking tragedy. You know, as I read this account this week, I was thinking about this young girl, and I thought, I, I wonder how I would have reacted had I been in her place as a young person. Your parents killed, you're dragged off, sold as a slave. I, I wondered how my faith would have reacted, because I think that's what's quite remarkable about this young girl. I wonder what my faith would have been like, because i got to tell you what, the experiences that I've had in life and the experiences that I've worked with with people in this life suggest that maybe... When something bad happens to us, the first thing we do is we're ready to kind of bail on our faith and to start questioning God or blaming God for something we don't think should have happened in our life. I know I do that. Even when the bad things that happen to me are way down the awful scale compared to what happened to this young girl, I'm ready to ask God, why would you let this happen to me, Lord? Is it that you don't care for me or is it that you're just not keeping track? Because what's going on in my life right now is not what should be, Lord. So then, don't you find it amazing that this little girl whose life was a walking tragedy, she didn't just cling to her faith in the God of Israel. When we find her in this account, she's sharing her faith. She's evangelizing. She's got a faith that's showing itself in love to the person who owns her. Think about that. Oh, if only my master would go to Samaria. There's a prophet of the true God there, and that prophet will cure my master. Then no one will put butt behind your name. You know, God, think about this. He used the terrible tragedy that happened in that girl's life, the abduction of this young woman, and God used it to display his power in an unexpected place, to use a slave girl to reach the upper circles of power in Aram, to use a piece of what he considered property, to send this powerful man on a course that would intersect with the true prophet of God. And surprisingly, Naaman listened. Listened to a slave girl. But maybe that's not all that surprising. I mean, when we are faced with what seems like, you know, a sickness that won't possibly go away, or a situation that can't possibly in our mind be resolved in a good way. Sometimes we're willing to listen to ideas from crazy places, right? Maybe that's all Naaman was doing. He was grasping at any straw that was showing itself, and this girl, she says, there's a prophet. But he listened. He goes to his king to get permission to go to this opposite land, and then I, I think that one of the more interesting parts of this account is when you see the, the, the discussions between the king of Aram and Naaman and the king of Israel, because it, it seems to me that they're like rich and powerful people of every age who think that they can tell God what to do. Because right? that's what's happening here, right? The king of Aram says, oh, I'll just send a letter with Naaman. Naaman will take a bunch of money. He'll go to the king of Israel. The king of Israel will order the prophet, who obviously works for him, to heal Naaman. He'll come home. And Naaman sets off with a few million dollars worth of booty, thinking he's going to be able to buy his way back to health. Of course, when I say it that way, maybe it's not just the rich and powerful people of this world that act that way. 
maybe you and I sometimes, we might not show up in front of God's house with a truckload of gold, but, you know, sometimes we act like them and think that we can deal with God on our terms, right? I mean, that's what these guys were doing, right? They wanted to dictate the terms in which they were going to interact with God, and, well, sometimes that seems like a familiar action in our life, too. When we want to tell God how he will fit into our life, rather than God telling us how to fit our lives to him. You know, I got plenty of room for God in my life as, as long as it doesn't squeeze my schedule too much. I got perfectly a lot of room in my life for God as long as he's not asking me to truly turn away from that sin I should have repented of a long time ago. I've got plenty of room for God in my life as long as, as, long as what he wants are kind of surface changes rather than deep spiritual transformation that would mean fitting my life to his. We got room for God in our life, but the words that come after but are never good, and they always dictate the rest of the relationship. These guys wanted to deal with God on his terms, but God was in no way, shape, or form going to allow that. He had a completely different idea. You know, he decided to show these men that the power of God was going to be found in a completely unexpected place. See, Naaman expected to be healed in the palace of the king of Israel. Well, what was going to happen there? The king of Israel, he thought this just was all political intrigue. This was the way of King Aram was trying to get after him. And he says, what am I supposed to do? How can I heal this guy? And that's when the prophet Elisha sent a message. A message of rebuke, really, for the king. He said, send him to me. Then they will know that there is a prophet in Israel. I want you to think about this. Uh, picture this scene. So Naaman is going to go. He's summoned to the house of Elisha, the prophet. And, uh, you know, here's Naaman. He's a hero. He's nationally known. He's dressed probably in his battle gear. He's leading a huge entourage of soldiers and horses and chariots, right? So this, this would be today like a, a four-star general in his military dress blues with his medals and his ribbons leading a column of M1 Abrams tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles down the road to get the prophet Elisha's house. Then the general gets out of his Humvee, stands in front of the house, and waits to be served by the prophet. And what does Elisha do? He doesn't even open the door. Doesn't even look out the window. Doesn't do anything at all. Leaves this national hero standing out there with his tanks and his Bradley fighting vehicles and his soldiers like he couldn't be bothered at all. Now think about that. Naaman no doubt thought that his reputation, his accomplishments, um, his persona should have led to some action on the part of Elisha. Maybe sometimes do we do the same thing? Do we ever show up at God's house with the list of things that we've done in our head? Or with the list of the kind of person I am in my head? Look, Lord, I'm a Christian. I come to church, even on a holiday weekend. Nicely played, by the way, right? It's a little extra special, right? Four-day weekend, you're in church. 
I'm a Christian. I come to church on a four-day weekend. I pray regularly. I tell my children about Jesus. I keep the law. I am not like my neighbor across the street, Lord. So tell me something. Why is it that you're not addressing the need that I've been bringing to you? Lord, I've been your follower since I've been a child. Why is it that I keep praying about this and you're not doing anything about it, Lord? Why won't you do what I ask? Sometimes God needs us to stand outside the prophet's house with all of our medals, tanks, and soldiers behind us, and wait so that we remember and learn that God is no respecter of persons. The horses and chariots didn't mean anything to him. The one thing, the one thing that God wants is humble repentance, a childlike trust in him. God needed to teach Naaman this lesson, and so he showed him his power in a very unexpected place. So Elisha doesn't open the door, doesn't open the window, doesn't come out. He just sends out a message to him. <clears throat> and the message really simply said this, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And Naaman was outraged. Outraged. First he makes me stand out here. He doesn't even come out himself. Then he sends out a message that I should go dip myself seven times in a muddy river, Jordan. Have you seen it? We've got rivers plenty much better than that in Damascus. I thought he'd come outside and wave his hand over the spot, a little hocus-pocus, a little shock and awe. But what do I get? A message to say, go wash yourself in a muddy river seven times. You know, St. Paul wrote this once. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Do you know why? Why the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing? Well, for a lot of people of this world, uh, God's plan of salvation seems too easy for them. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. There's got to be more to it than that. Uh, it sounds like washing myself in a muddy river. I'm sorry, there's got to be more to it than that. It, it can't be that easy. Shouldn't there be uh, some hocus-pocus, some shock and awe? Should, shouldn't there be something big required of me? Well, here's the thing. When the world looks at the message of the cross and finds it too easy, two things are happening there. Number one is a fundamental misunderstanding of the cross. And number two, a fundamental misunderstanding of its cost. Because here's the thing, while salvation comes freely to you and me, nothing big from us is required. It was not easy and it was not cheap. I mean, this salvation cost the lifeblood of the Son of God. The high prince of the heavenly kingdom had to die a condemned sinner's death. Too easy? And if you want to see shock and awe, go to Calvary's cross and watch while God forsakes his son. If you want to see shock and awe, go to Easter's empty tomb when Christ breaks forth having defeated death and burst the, the fetters of the grave forever. If you want to see shock and awe, you go to that place and you see the one who had no sin made my sin so that we could be declared righteous forever. And that is shock and that is awe. That is the hard part and that is the high cost.
Also that God can then say to you and me, come, just come. Be made whole. Come and be cleansed. There's, there's no hocus pocus. There's no requirement. What must you do to be saved? Just trust. Like that little girl who trusted in the God of Israel. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Naaman's servants finally convinced him, hey, listen, if he'd have asked you to come here and do some big thing, you'd have done it. So he's asking you to just go wash. Why not do it? And Naaman did, and in that unexpected place, he found the power of God, and he was made whole. He was cleansed. And no longer would anyone ever use the word but when they described him again. But even more than that, in that river, something else changed for Naaman. He changed from being an unbelieving skeptic, from being a power-driven pragmatist, to being a believer and a follower of the God of Israel. Power, an unexpected place. So maybe the last question for us, for us to ask this morning is, uh, what is the thing in your life that maybe only you know about, but what's the thing in your life that would uh, make someone use the word but when they describe you? Now, he's a great pastor, but she's a good person, but well, he's a hard worker, but whatever comes after that word but really defines you. Sometimes it's what people would remember you by if they knew. What is that spot of leprosy in your life? Whatever it is, Christ can make you whole. Whatever it is, Christ can make you clean. We might be so, so cognizant of the leprosy of sin in our life that we forget the way Jesus interacted with lepers. You know, one time when Jesus came face to face with a leper, here was a man who had been living a life of isolation, a man who'd been separated from his family, suffering from this defiguring disease, someone who probably hadn't felt human touch in longer than he could remember. And he came face to face with his Savior and he fell on his knees and he said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what Jesus did, he reached out and he touched him. Probably the first human touch this man had felt in years and years. Because Jesus knew in this touch, Jesus would not be unclean. But he would make this man clean again. He said, I am willing. Be clean. So here's the thing. Jesus doesn't fear your sin. He knows all about it. And you know what? Still he reaches out to you and he touches you to make you clean so that God can describe you in a completely different way. He can use that word but and everything that follows it will be a wonderful, glorious definition of who you are when he can look at you and say, well, yeah, they were a sinner, but, but they have been washed clean. God grant it. Amen.